Welcome to another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites, the most binge-worthy podcast on the internet. If you'd like to join in the conversation about today's show or any of our past shows, you can simply go to our Curiosity Bites page on Facebook. I'm your host, Jav Barron. Curious to know more about me and what it is that I do to serve the highest performing individuals like yourself? You can find out more at DoveBaron.com. That's D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. As you know, I've always been curious about why we collectively, individually do what we do. Moreover, what changes us? What has us do something different than those around us? You know, we all walk around and right now, I mean, just think of it. There's probably something right now that's bothering you. There's probably something right now uh, that you are irritated by in society, upsets you. But the question is, what are you willing to do about it? Most people go, nothing. You know, it's nothing I can do about it. It's not really my problem. Someone else will fix that. Well, what if actually right now you have the power to create social and cultural change? What if that's actually your purpose? Moreover, what if you could find the answer in your spare room, in the spare room of your house? Well, that's the rabbit hole we're going down on today for another delicious series of episodes of Curiosity Bites. So grab a beverage, find a cozy corner, because our guest today is Emily Chang. She is a seasons executive who is the CEO of McCann World Group China. She has worked with some of the world's most renowned and prestigious companies like Apple, Procter & Gamble, and other companies you may have heard of called like Starbucks. Over the last 22 years, her job has brought her and her family to eight different homes across the US and China. And everywhere she's lived, Emily has found herself at the unique intersection of her offer and her offense. We'll go into that in great detail and it'll really make powerful sense to you. It was one of the things that really intrigued me about, about Emily and what she's doing. Life has served her up young people who have been abused, neglected, and marginalized to find sanctuary in her spare room. This includes the emotionally abused child bride, a dying baby born with hydrocephalus, uh, an abused daughter of a local prostitute. Emily has found that living into her social legacy has not only deeply enriched her own home life, it has also enabled her to become a more authentic and relatable leader in the workplace. Each time she opens the door to her spare room, Emily has found herself with a front row seat, witnessing one of life's incredible stories unfold. So ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and help me to welcome author of The Spare Room, Emily James. By the most enthusiastic, exciting introduction I've ever heard. I know Thanks for us, who so. are corporate speakers, they go, Ladies and gentlemen, let's please welcome to the stage. <laughs> so I'm glad to give you an enthusiastic welcome. I am really happy you're, you're here. So I want to start with the, the first question I always like to start with, which what do you find yourself most curious about these days? What, what really has you curious? The thing that has me the most curious right now is how I can contribute more. That's, that's the first reaction I start thinking of. You know, I'm 45. Perhaps this is, this is the formal sort of um, manifestation of my midlife crisis. <laughs> I keep thinking about this formula our family has over our fireplace mantle, which is 
consume. Actually, it's the other way around. We used to write it the other way, but we want it to be more positive. It's now contribute divided by consume is greater than one. Oh, say that so again. That was very good. Contribute. It's contribute divided by consume is greater than one. Wow. So we used to have it flipped. So it was consume divided by contribute is less than one, but this seems more positive and additive. <laughs> and when we think about it that way, what we're always wondering is what can we do to contribute more and equally, how do we consume less? And those are the things we talk about every night at dinner. So occasionally we live in Shanghai and we still have a lot of plastic water bottles, you know, um, we're doing our best in, in our home, but last night at dinner, we were talking about how do we stop using them? When someone hands them to us, it's a nice cold bottle of water in the middle of steamy, hot Shanghai. Should we still accept it? Or should we mm. actually be saying, no, maybe I can drink room temperature water in my bottle that I carry with me. And that is good enough. How much, how much are we convicted by the things that matter to us? Yeah, but that, you know, right there, you said something really interesting. How much conviction do I have around it? Because, you know, we're going to get into it because it's so important. But this idea of being pissed off about something or wanting to, you know, you know, we should all come together about this. And then, yeah, but as long as I don't have to do anything. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. And, and, and because one of the great um, addictions of, of our, particularly in the modern world, is convenience. We're addicted to convenience. You know, I, I have a friend uh, I was talking to who was very pissed off about Amazon destroying small business. And I said, have you ever ordered from them? <laughs> and he went, yeah, I got it. I have. I said, why? And he goes, it's convenient. Mm -hmm. And I, that's it. So you trade your values for convenience. I'm not judging you on it, but you have to be aware of that. That's what you're doing. And if you can't stand up for that, then really shut up. Really, that's my answer. Just be quiet about it because otherwise you just seem hypocritical. And we're all hypocrites. Don't get me wrong. I eat meat and I could never kill an animal. But, you know, I, I get that. But I also don't talk about not treating animal and not, you know, I, I like I want to have a little bit of integrity around that. So that giving up the convenience to saying, you know, I can drink, I can drink room temperature. It's okay. I think that's what living with intentionality is all about. Whether it is sticking to your conviction and saying, this really does matter to me. I said it matters to me. And, you know, I have a 12 year old, so I better live my life as though it matters to me, but equally in the good things stuff, I think, you know, yesterday, and we don't always get this right. Yesterday was a fun day because I recently got in a small accident and I'm on crutches. So somebody dropped off a huge basket of cookies. It was super generous, more cookies than our family can eat probably in a month. So I started packaging them up in little tins. And I thought, let me just bring it to work. And surely today I will find a reason to celebrate and I will have home baked cookies, you know, and in crutches, it's kind of hard to have a little tin of cookies. I had to hang it on a gift bag. And I, I kind of questioned myself, I'm like, what am I doing? And I have to go downstairs. I'm going to kill myself over this little tin of cookies. But then I thought, no, I have extra cookies. I'd rather bring them to work. This sounds like such a small, minute example, but it's the little intentionalities because I'll tell you what happened. It was somebody's birthday that had slipped my calendar. And I had this opportunity to pull out fresh baked cookies <laughs> and bring them over to her still on crutches. And sometimes it's those little things. They matter so much more to somebody than the small inconvenience 
that has been levied on myself? You know, I, I think that the small things matter more. Yeah. Um, if I ask people, what's the biggest gift you ever got? They can, they can kind of work that out. But I ask you, what's the most important gift you ever got? Mm. It's never the same thing. What was the most important, meaningful gift you ever got? It's not usually the same thing, right? Uh, I, I can, I, I'm this guy, right? I can never remember what I got for Christmas. I can't remember what I got for birthdays. I, can't, I just can't remember. Just It goes out of my head. Am I grateful at the time? I am, enormously. But I don't remember that stuff because I'm not really that keen on stuff. I don't care. But you asked me what the meaningful, most meaningful gift was. On my birthday, my son, who is not very effusive, sat down and told me about me as a father. And like was so, like it, I was crying. I was weeping, right? Mm. That's the most meaningful. What did it cost? Cost him nothing in money. Cost mm. him everything in courage because it's not who he is. He doesn't feel like it's okay for him to do that. And he did it. It was like, Wow. Now, if my other son had done it, it would have had a lot of meaning, but he's effusive. He speaks out and says those kind of things, so it wouldn't have meant as much. So I think it's the little things that matter the most, and I really appreciate you bringing that to the surface for people. <laughs> I, I agree. I yeah. think the gift that resonates the most with me, I was just thinking about your example. I was thinking, okay, what would mine be? I have so many, but you're right. They're all the little things and they're almost always for my daughter. Like these little, these little bracelets I wear every day. You yeah. know, I don't have a lot of fancy jewelry. You, you mentioned those things don't matter to you. Same with me. I don't have a lot of things that are worth a lot, but these things are priceless to me because they're, they're an experiment that she took on their little wire weaving. It, kind of blistered her little fingers. She spent hours on them and I wear them every single day. And honestly, I think I'd be devastated if I lost one of them. Yeah. But you could lose a diamond and you go, oh, that was really bad. And you might feel sad for half an hour. And then you go, eh, it's, you know, it's a thing. But if yeah. you lost that bracelet made by your daughter's own hand, it's like, oh my God. Right. right? So we, 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 I think we have values, my language, ask about front. I mean, we just, we've got things mixed up and we don't, we've become so um, affected by the commercialization and the, the capitalization of all things that we've forgotten what matters most. And really, that is so much about what it is about you. You know, I, I want to just come back to this. You are, I mean, I know you wouldn't say this, but I will. You're a bigwig. I mean, you've, you've run big companies. You've been in charge of huge parts of organizations. Um, you know, like I talked about Apple and Procter and Gamble and, uh, and Starbucks, et cetera. And there's no, there's, I know, um, you're also married. You've been married for, I think you said 20 plus years. Uh, you have an 11 year old daughter and then you took a year off to write a book called the spare room. Why? That's the answer. That's the question that most people are going to ask because like, you know, officially you've got it all. So why did you write the book? I mean, you were doing what you were doing and that's filling your soul, but you wrote a book about it. Why? Because I've written books. I know it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was not an easy thing. No. I have three answers. <laughs> Things tend to come to me in like bullet points of three. It's how my brain works. The first one is why wait until retirement? Mm -hmm. So there's so many things we think, oh, when I retire, I want to do this. Or, oh, one day when I have the time, I'm going to do that. 
But why, but why wait? Why, especially when it comes to something you really feel compelled and you feel like will be something that contributes to the world. It'll leave people better who touch it. So, so the longer I wait to tell these stories, the less fresh they'll be in my mind. Mm-hmm. Maybe the less passionate I'll feel about the entire project. So for me, the downside of waiting until the more suitable period based on, you know, how society dictates we ought to be living Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense for the project. So that's the first thing is I often question, why would I wait on on this? Or, you know, if I wait until I retire and then go to Croatia, am I going to be able to do all the things and enjoy it the way that I might today? (laughs) Right. So we've often tried to invest in the exciting things now. Right. And sometimes it might even sound a little selfish, certainly in some ways countercultural. But I have to believe that building into myself and pursuing my passions allow me to be a better person who can then contribute more meaningfully to the people around me. So that's the first thought. The second reason is I wanted to honor the people in our spare room. We we have encountered some extraordinary people. Truly, it is our our greatest blessing and it has shaped who we are as individuals, particularly my daughter who's still a kid. And it's shaped us and who we are as a family, just like we have identities as individuals, we have an identity as a family unit. And I feel so lucky that we know who we are as a family, this little Mm -hmm. cluster of three humans that we wanted to pay it back to all these kids and, and also tell others who don't know them how extraordinary they are and how often people do slip through relatively wide cracks in mm-hmm. the social justice system and, and encourage people that really there is something you can do about it. I guess if there's a third thing, the reason I, I stopped to write the book is I really believe in trying to take a break when you can. And I've always Mm -hmm. done that on a a relatively micro point of view. So, so lots of things every morning when I wake up, I try to take 15 minutes. I don't try. I do. I take 15 minutes to just meditate and think about the day. What do I want to lead with intention? Once a month, I take one day and I work from home. So I have the quiet. And then one day a quarter, I take one day by myself, either at a hotel overnight or whatever that looks like just to be alone. I think those moments of quiet have been incredible for me. And I I wouldn't have known their value if I hadn't just started trying it. And so being able to take three months between jobs was the longest I'd ever done before. And it really was changing for me in terms of level setting, closing one chapter, opening the next one with the time, the pace and the intentionality I'd never had before. So then thinking through what I started to coin my hashtag professional halftime, I thought, let's do this. Let's give it one year, a whole year feels like an eternity, but in the span of your lifetime, taking one year at a point when you feel like you have something you want to do, you feel called to do it and your family supports you. You add up those kind of bullets, one, two, three, and you think, why on earth would I not? Yeah, it, I, I agree with you. It, it's I think there are a lot of people who write a book because they think they should write a book. It's good for their business. It's good for their brand, whatever it is. And those things are true, but there's, that's different than being compelled to write something because it's aligned with who you are with your purpose. And you feel like others need to know about it, not to know about you so much as to know about what the message is. And I, I love that, Emily. I love that about what you're doing. You know, you talked about, what you've done with the spare room and all these kids. And uh, I think you said it was 16 children slash babies, including 
uh, into your own home in the last 20 years. Um, but you also have a daughter. So she's a kid and kids have uh, they're naturally a little selfish. Um, they want it want to be, you know, they want it to be about them. Right. Can you talk to us a little bit about how old she was when you took your first one in that she was there with? Because uh, I know you, you be, it was back when in college when you started, but with her, and how has it been for her? How has it, you know, has she battled with that? I mean, I'm sure that it's evolved her enormously, but there would be an, I would imagine there'd be a natural internal tension. I think there was. The first one was an amazing story that's not in the book. Oh. So we had just landed in Shanghai about three days, three to five days. And we went out to do the usual that you do when you move to a new city, like buy sponges and detergent and mops and things for your, for your temporary house. And because we were in Shanghai, my husband didn't speak fluent Chinese. He went to Carrefour and I went to the wet market to go buy produce. So my husband is walking through Carrefour with our daughter, who's about two years old. And from across Carrefour, which is a very busy hypermarket, he hears a voice call out, Mr. Minky. And it turns out it's a teenager who we knew when we lived in Guangzhou seven years prior. We've just arrived back in China. This young lady, we can call her Lexi. Her family prefers her story not to be in the book, but I can talk a little bit about it here. She was only four years old when we met her, and she was one of the, the children that was left behind because of the one-child policy. Right. And her American family found her and took her home and raised her. So by all definitions, emotionally, they are her family and her mom and her dad, her sisters and brothers. But by on paper, she doesn't have a family, much less exist because she has no paperwork, no birth certificate, no identification. So when we met her, she was just four. When we left Guangzhou, she was about seven and she was still trying to figure out, her family was still trying to figure out how to get her paperwork because they weren't able to take her back to the States. They weren't able to, if you think about this, take her to a hospital if something went wrong, enroll her in a school, take her on a train. So, so they took her on when she was four. Actually, they took her as a baby. They took, oh, they her, took as a, her as a baby. We met uh, her when she was four. Yes. So the, the, can you give a little bit of background on how they found this baby? Because, you know, the one child policy, just in case people don't know, you know, China had a one child policy. It's changed a little bit now because they've got some problems because of it. Um, but they had a one child policy where families were only allowed one child. Um, and oftentimes, if that child was a girl, she went in the garbage can or she as as a newborn or she would be abandoned or whatever it was. So how did they end up with it? Is that, have I got that right? I don't want to mislead anybody. You not only got it right, she was found in a garbage can. Um, oh still goodness. with afterbirth on her body. So back then that happened a lot more frequently. So yeah. she was taken home and cleaned up because um, they decided that obviously it's not okay to see a, a live baby in the garbage. And they immediately took her to an orphanage um, and tried to try to leave her there. But back in those days as well, I think people looked at foreigners and just assumed all foreigners were wealthy. So nobody would take the baby because they thought you're a wealthy American family. You keep her. That's better for her than putting her here um, with, you know, maybe perhaps a positive intention for the child. Sure. And so they ended up keeping her. 
And like I said, by the time we met her, she was four years old, a, a very sweet girl. And um, she was still, she was just seven when we left Guangzhou. And so, you know, you think about this stuff, what were there 17 million people in Shanghai when we came back in 2011? Wow. Our first week here, seven years later, she sees my husband across a car for, remembers him and calls out his name. <laughs> that it, like that for me is, is bizarre. Is, y- is, your, is your husband Chinese? He's Korean. He's Korean. So it's, not like okay. he, it's not even like physically he stands out. In no, a I'm just going to say he's not, he's not he's not a redheaded six foot Scotsman. Right. It's not like he's going to stand out like to use an Aussie term like dog's balls. You know, it's not like that. He's he's going to somewhat blend in a crowd, at least. I don't mean to be generalized or, or generic sure. about it. But how, I mean, like that is mind blowing that she recognized him across the market. Totally. Seven years later, right? She was only yeah. seven years old when we left. So it is, it is extraordinary. And I think, you know, a lot of people will ask us, how did you get 16 kids? What foster program? There's never been a program we've signed up for. We, we truly believe that our family is open to doing this thing, this small thing in the way that we can. And then the thing will find us. It's like drawn to us in some way. And, and I think this particular story, it's just, if you, if you try to calculate the, the probability, right, <laughs> of Lexi finding my husband Minky in the car for seven years later in a city of 17 million people, it, it's just got to be impossible. It's got to be. Yeah. And with it, and here's 17 million to one, actually. Yeah. At that moment in time, it, more right? than that. Yeah. In time, right. In that moment, not over time, but in that moment, it's a 17 million to one. Yeah. There's a, you know, I'm not going to put a dollar on, on a lottery ticket at 17 million to one. And look at that. Bam. That's right. insane. Yeah, it is. So we ended up um, going to their, their home and hearing all about their family and how they had ended up splitting up in the last seven years. The father went back to the States with their natural born children. The mother stayed here and, you know, she's now a teenager, still has never been to a hospital or a school and still trying to find their way forward as a family. Within a few weeks after that, just a few weeks, the mother came down with a very debilitating uh, medical situation and had to immediately go to the States for surgery. And she called and said, I have to go. I, I can't leave my daughter here. Can she just come live with you while I go back? So that's how the very first kid in Lainey's memory moved into our home. It, was, it wasn't even a question, it was of course. And you know, my daughter was so young, we didn't really engage her in the dialogue back then. We just said, remember that girl you met? We're gonna have her come, come live with us because her mom's sick. So. So one of the things I will say later, I realized I underestimated was the impact this had on my daughter to your, to your original question. She actually loved it. She loved having an older sister in the house and she just absolutely took for granted that this is normal because she didn't know any other way. So she's basically almost always grown up with a sibling in the home. And in those early years, she had older, younger brother, sister, she had them all. And so for her, I think it was just fun. It's, it's an adventure. It's like when you first buy a new car and you're like, oh, let me crawl into it. Or you move into a new house. You're like, which room is mine? You, you have a new sibling and you're like, oh, what's this person like? How are we going to get along? I think it was like that for her. So she was but very generous. Them, but not all of them have stayed with you. They've, they've moved through your place. Um, and so, you know, cause when, when I, you and I first talked about, it, I thought, you know, what about the grief for you, for, for your daughter of losing a sibling, you know, cause 
you know, this person's been in my life every day and then suddenly is not, even though rationally we can go, oh, well, you know, they've gone on to living with a family and it's great, all those yeah. good things, but that's not emotionally true. It's logically true. You know what that's, I mean? Yeah, that's true. I asked my daughter this a couple of years later, many years later, we had a son named Teo and his story is in the book. He lived mm -hmm. with us on and off for five years. So a total of three years in our, in our home. Mm -hmm. And when he moved out, I was destroyed. I, I used to go to work just with tears rolling down my face. I just couldn't stop him, <laughs> but I didn't not want to be at work. So I just kind of told everyone, ignore it. I'm fine. It's just, you know, your heart breaks, but your mind still yeah. works. And I want to yeah. be here. And everyone was really wonderful with that. And, and Lainey seemed really okay. And I was kind of concerned, like, are we suppressing? You know, how are we feeling? And I asked her, I said, how are you doing? She goes, mom, I don't understand why you're so not okay. And I said, you know, you've spent half your life with Teo. How are you okay? How, how do you think about that? And she said, I think our life is like jeggings. Our family is like jeggings. And jeggings was like her favorite article of clothing, which is jeans slash leggings. They're okay. these like stretchy, comfortable yeah. leggings that young children wear. And I said, okay. She's like, well, we fit all different sizes of people in our family and we stretch. And then when they move, we just stretch back. And now it's us again. Okay. So uh, when did you give birth to the Buddha? <laughs> <laughs> Buddha who wears jeggings? <laughs> yeah. B Buddha in jeggings. That's the title of your next book. The Buddha in jeggings. <laughs> that is fantastic. Because like, what a what an amazing child your daughter is. I mean, obviously, this has broadened her and deepened her in ways that are way beyond her time. Um, you know, and particularly you being a, a, a well off family in a, you know, in a in a country that has extreme poverty and extreme wealth. And it would be easy for the people to assume, oh, here's another entitled little shit, you know, who lives in the city and blah, blah, blah. And she, I mean, the way you're describing her, she seems like she's so generous of spirit. You know, it's like, wow, what an amazing kid. Like, I want to, I want to meet Lainey, you know, I mean, it's like, wow, what a great kid. She, I agree. And, and that's a very not Chinese mother thing to say about your child, but I, I do think she kind of came out amazing and she's become her own human. You start realizing as a parent, right, that there's some degree of impact that you can have on them in many ways, they have their very own personality, probably regardless, and in many ways, probably thankfully, regardless of who we are. And then they develop in their own unique way. I, I am floored by who she is. In fact, we started recording these things we're calling hashtag taxi chats and they're on our, on my website. And they're just these little video snippets because we're in the car a lot. So I yeah. just hold up my mobile phone and I'll ask a question. And more recently, she's been asking a question and these are unscripted. We don't talk about them first. I just say, you know, lady, how did you feel about this? Or what was it like when we brought Teo to your school events and he was in a wheelchair because you don't see a lot of special needs people in public out here. And mm -hmm. she would just answer. And, and when you hear her answers, you're like, how do you have that maturity? And frankly, the ability to communicate your thoughts at this age, it, it really blows my mind. Yeah. So obviously she's an incredible child um, and, and will become an, an incredible human. Um, she's already an incredible human adult. Um, so the other side of this is, and I'm going to go into it we'll probably go into it in the next section, but you know, we're going to talk about where it all started for you, which is before, I guess was before you were married. Um, so, you know, you've picked up this habit 
um, of, of being this incredibly generous person in the spare room. Um, and then you meet a man, you know, and we've all done it. You fall in love, you meet somebody and suddenly priorities shift. It's normal. Priorities shift. Uh, how do you explain to your husband? Hey, listen, we've got a spare room. <laughs> and he's like, hey, we're nearly married. Uh, don't you think we should spend some time alone? How did that work with him? In fact, I think the spare room was the reason I wanted to marry him. I wasn't the kind of person in my late teens or early 20s who you would think, she seems ready to settle down. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> you were a little wild? <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't look like somebody ready to say yes and put a ring on it and, and go buy a house <laughs> and make casseroles. But I met my husband in, in undergraduate and um, he was, first of all, he was Asian and I hadn't really dated a whole lot of Asians because I grew up in, in a very white area. Um, and then wow. second, How was that? it was in Pittsburgh, New York, upstate New okay. York. So you're in upstate New York. It's Whiteyville, right? So you've been around Whitey all the time and then you meet this guy. Okay. Yeah. So we're in university and um, you know, he's also, he's, we're both engineers we're studying engineering. So it's some sort of nerd love fest, but I mean, he's, he's actually kind of a nerd. <laughs> he's like, you know, Fabulous. um, disciplined and organized and thoughtful and, and all, all things electrical engineering is, is this guy Minky. And, and we were studying late one night and I already had a teenage girl living with me and I, we didn't talk about her very much, but I think he was aware that she was just kind of crashing at my place for a while back then. That was, that was years and years before I ever coined the spare room or thought of it as a thing in my life. You know, it was just sort of these moments, these people I came across. Um, but Leo had, Leah had moved in and that night we were studying at the kitchen table and she wasn't home. And I didn't think too much of it because we kind of let her come and go as she pleased. I wasn't her mother by any stretch, just a few years older than her. And then I had a phone call from her and she was sobbing. And I couldn't really understand what she was saying, but she was in the red light district of Rochester, New York. Right. And she said, can you come get me? And it was like 1130 at night, you know, Rochester in the winter is not pleasant weather. <laughs> and I kind of looked up and before I could even answer Leah on the phone, I had noticed that Minky had shrugged on his coat. He grabbed his keys. We didn't really have mobile phones back then. So he grabbed a post-it note and a pen and he gave it to me and he said, write the address. And, and I thought, oh, wow, he, I don't, I don't think he'd even really known her, met her back then, but he could hear on the phone that there was this distressed girl. And he knew there was a girl living with me. He didn't even question it. He went and got her. She came back that night and only, I kind of looked at him kind of like what's going on. And he just kind of shook his head. She went to her room, to her area of the room. And then I kind of said, what happened? He goes, I didn't ask. Why would I ask? And I thought, okay, I would have asked my first thing in my personality would have been like, what happened? Tell me what's going on. Who hurt you? Let me go after them. You know, and he just had this, first of all, this immediate willingness to go help her. Second, he didn't ask. He just let her be. And then he encouraged me rightfully to just let her be. And I never knew what happened to her that night to this day. And obviously I would still be a little bit curious, but he was right to just let her be. And, and I think that was the moment when I just watched this quiet, humble, thoughtful man. I thought, my life would be better. I will be better if I marry him. Beautiful. We are already at the end of part one. What a, what a, hasn't it flown? It's beautiful. So, I mean, this is a 
truly delicious conversation about the humanity of us. And, and I, I, I'm really looking forward to getting into the next part. But before we do, I want to make sure that everybody knows more about you, where they can find out about you, about your book, about all the different resources that you have. If you would please share with our audience where they can find out more about you, that would be awesome. Of course, if you want to find the book, you can just search at any of the major retailers, The Spare Room Social Legacy. And you can find my website where I have those taxi chats posted at www.social-legacy.com. And you can follow socials at The Spare Room Book. Fabulous. And we, of course, will make sure that all the links to all the websites and all the social is posted inside of the show notes for you so you can find them. Um, we're having a fabulous conversation here, and I really hope that you will stay with us and stay curious, my friends, stay curious. We're coming into part two of the show, which is just one click away. So stay curious, my friends, stay curious about your social legacy, how you can tap into it. And we're going to talk about where yours can be found in the next section. We'll see you in just one click.